Greetings, Hushlings. Welcome back to a long-awaited episode of Declassified Discussions. I'm Declassified Dave. I'm Mr. Mike. And I'm Slick Frank Sanders. This evening, we are joined by the author of Alchemia, which is a four-part historical fantasy adventure series based upon the ancient art of alchemy set in the 1920s. As well as a creative contributor and writer on videos about cryptids for Mystery Syndicate, on a YouTube channel. Hushtillians, please welcome Zosimos. Thank you. Honored to be here, gentlemen. Uh, before we begin, just let everybody know what you're all about. A lot of people may not know about your background and who you are. Just give us a rundown. Sure. Yes. Uh, I think the introduction that Frank gave was pretty apt, um, but Yes, I'm just a, an enthusiast of alchemy. If that qualifies me as an occultist, so be it. But uh, yeah, I, just, I was inspired by the art to create a, uh, a series of novels, uh, which one day hopefully I'd like to turn into films. And yeah, it became a, a large four-part project. If anyone's familiar with alchemy, they'll know that the number four is pretty significant. So I'm just somebody that's very interested in many different disciplines and combining them in creative ways. And I think that's really the basis of, of art. Um, and that's what I like to pursue in my life's work. So as simply as you can put it, because outside of video games and film, I'm not very familiar with alchemy. Can you sort of summarize what alchemy is, how it's used, what its purpose is? Sure. I get asked this question a lot. Um, that's probably because we've all heard about um, turning lead into gold. I think everyone's kind of familiar with that concept. But really, the basis of alchemy is that everything that exists can be broken down into smaller parts and then rearranged into new forms. So that's the basis. And that every thing every object whether it's you know animal animal mineral vegetable has mind body and soul so you can separate those parts purify them and rearrange them uh that's that's a very very simple explanation there's a lot more to it you get into a lot of ethical practices but for the body part there's science for the mind there's philosophy and then for the soul, that's where the magical and the mystical elements come in. So you can think of it as a multidisciplinary practice. Um, the ultimate achievement of alchemy is crafting the philosopher's stone, which is also something I think a lot of people have heard about. If you've ever read Harry Potter, everywhere except the United States, it's the philosopher's stone and not the sorcerer's stone. <laughs> For some reason, they thought Americans wouldn't catch on. Um, but yeah, you already this is sounding a bit like the modern conception of chemistry. And that's what it led into. Because if you don't have microscopes and, you know, atomic theory, well, how do you explain all of these chemical changes that you can witness in nature and in your own experiments? So that's what alchemy is in the simplest of terms. 
Now, when you were writing your books and doing your research, what things were you researching other than alchemy? And what, what kind of was your source material for the information that you were getting? Yeah, that's a good question. So the the books are still ongoing. I'm working on the third one currently, which is why we're here today to talk about the Tula Society, but we'll get to that soon. Um, yeah, really it was, where do I set the story historically? That was the real question, because I knew it want, I wanted to have sort of a globetrotting Indiana Jones-esque feel, but there had to be something different about it. And I went back and forth on a number of periods between the 1890s and the 1930s. Indy's kind of firmly in the 1930s. If we forget about the fourth film, it's firmly in the 1930s. Um, so I knew it couldn't be in the 30s. And I knew that if I said in the 40s, everyone's done the Nazis in the 40s. So I settled on the 1920s post-World War One, and I think that created the most story opportunities because there were a lot of changes going on in the world at that time and the fundamentals of alchemy are all about change. So once I'd made that key decision, I started following the journey of alchemy because you can trace where it's generally originated from because the word alchemy comes from a a word that means uh, the black land as in the black land of Egypt. That was where it originated. So you can follow the influence of alchemy from the Egyptians to the Greeks, to the Romans, to uh, the Arabs, and then back to Europe and then all across different parts of the world. It's a tradition that's gone on for thousands of years. So it was a matter of looking at, what happened historically in those places with alchemy and then what was going on in the 1920s at that time what were the effects of world war one and then what's going on in those places today and the more i started researching and the more i started writing everything sort of fit together and there was a there was a better picture of how the world was working as a system because alchemy is about interconnection. And so new information was recontextualizing how I was viewing the world. And so that's what the story evolved into. And the rest is history, so they say. It's really creative because you're taking really old world stuff, stuff that's pre-Egypt, you know, stuff that's been passed on through people throughout millennia. And reinvigorating it and i was just going to ask you but you you kind of said it already is relating it to today because the 1920s to where we're at right now is kind of a similar spot you know we're dealing with some epic flu or some pandemic and recessions and just really volatile times i was going to ask if if like you correlated this story with the 1920s with today yeah, I, I can talk a little bit more about it. Um, yeah, a hundred years, especially if we're just looking at the, the period in which alchemy is being used, a hundred years is not very long at all. Um, and there are still people that, that do practice it today. Um, but in historical terms, 
There's a reason that World War One is called the greatest seminal catastrophe of the 20th century, because from there, the whole world went into upheaval and we're still seeing the effects of that today. And so that's, that's where a lot of the drama lies is that the decisions that were being made a hundred years ago are still affecting us today. We just may not realize what's going on. And so, yeah, if I can bring awareness to that, I think people can see the parallels. They're not exactly one-to-one, but there's, you know, they say history doesn't repeat. It sort of rhymes in a way. And so we can definitely learn. We have the benefit of hindsight in the 2020s of the 1920s, and we can learn from that. Now, how do you see this all rolling into the tool society? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. So right now I'm working on the third book. The first book we explored Egypt, Turkey, and Greece, which were all sort of part of the same world, the Greek Hellenistic world. And that's where alchemy really began. And then it emigrated to the Arab world later on. And that's where the second book is set in Syria and Palestine. Now, eventually those texts made it to Europe in the 12th century Renaissance, which then would later go on to influence the big Renaissance that we all know about, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, so on and so forth. And in that time, there was a lot of flourishing of alchemy. So in Central Europe, like Italy, France, Germany, Germany especially, uh, for the sake of my novel, there's a lot of important figures in alchemy. Being that the story is set in the 1920s, and in the 20s, there's lots of upheaval going on. Obviously, Germany loses World War I at the very, very end of 1918. And it's not until Versailles in the beginning of 1919 that things are being rearranged. It's little known to our educational system, but in that period between when Germany fell as an empire and became the Weimar Republic, everybody was fighting for political control. And one of the hotbeds of all that fighting was in Bavaria, especially in Munich. So Munich is a really key location And this also happens to be where an esoteric, alchemically based political group was rallying, and that is the Tula Society. And these figures would go on to become some of the greatest influences on the rise of Nazism. So already there's, it's a perfect storm, basically. And they've kind of lived on in our popular culture, you know, whether it's in uh, Captain America or Hellboy or other influences, Indiana Jones, this kind of occultism appears again and again. And there's a reason for that. It's weird. Their symbol is very reminiscent of a swastika. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, that's done deliberately. There's no exact definition of that symbol, but the reason there's an, an adoption of the swastika is because it's an Eastern symbol. So you may have seen it before in Buddhist art. It's all over. Yeah. Yeah. Buddhist art. And it's not because the ancient Hindus were anti-Semites. 
it's because it was a symbol of eternity and there's there are different versions of it might be longer in different directions but the one of the core tenets of the Tula society was based in what's called theosophy and so theosophy really believed that there were root races to humanity and that they came from distant lands that were perfect civilizations that were polluted over time. But there was still some evidence that these places existed in the middle, the you know, Middle East, Southeast Asia, India, Tibet, those areas. And so they adopted some of those symbols from the mystical tradition. There was combinations of these ancient mystical traditions. Do you know what Iran means? The country of Iran? Not a clue. Land of the Aryans. The Aryans huh. were... Interesting. The Aryans were an actual people. Mm-hmm. But theosophy bastardized this to say, well, the Aryans are the descendants of our ancient... You know, they're, they came down from our ancestors who were Hyperboreans, Atlanteans, living in this mystical land. And they were white and they lived in Asia and they lived in the Middle East. And uh, that was the perfect pure race. And so we need to recreate the pure Aryan race. And this is all starting to sound very familiar, isn't it? One question. Does this have like any correlation with the Tatarian empire? The Tatars, like the, the Turkic peoples? That would probably be what the late 19th century when a lot of stuff allegedly happened does this have any conjunction to like that whole society where nobody knows about it until the last couple of years that people are really talking about it um i i can't say that i know of any connection other than there might be some basis that helena blavatsky the founder of uh theosophy was really believing that the, she really tried to convince people that there, there was connections to Asia somewhere. So there might've been some crossover at some point. I personally am not aware. Super interesting that it's all, you have different, you know, empires, which we have today as countries, but you have different empires that are either warring with each other or are peaceful with each other. And history is so foggy. And mm-hmm. the fact that you're using a ton of historical fact to create something that's complete fantasy for somebody to, to read it is <laughs> so you. it's super cool, man. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. The, you want to talk about real historical fantasy though, the, <laughs> the, the Nazis and the Tula society were really wrapping historical facts to fit this sort of twisted narrative that they had that, you know, anything that they found, you know, any ancient wonder or whatever, there is a belief that it had to be magical and it had to be done by ancient white people. Uh, <laughs> it basically, just twisting facts to fit sort of racist pseudoscience. When it comes to the Tula Society, I understand they, they did have some sort of political agenda at play, right? They, Very much. It was sort of a power struggle. But at the same time, th- there was some occult themes going on within this group, correct? Oh, definitely. Whenever you've got 
a group of people together, you have to sort of adopt symbols and practices and rituals to give people a continued sense of membership, right? They're part of the group. They're doing these rituals. Theirs just happened to be occultish and based on very specific occult symbols. So I said that Munich was really this hotbed of a lot of political upheaval, but it had also been a hotbed for a lot of secret societies. In the past, there had been tons of alchemically related uh, secret societies, such as the Illuminati. The Illuminati were founded in Bavaria. Then you also had, you know, before them, Freemasons and then an alchemical order known as the Rosicrucians. Um, so there are all these alchemically based secret societies coming in Bavaria um, around the time of the Enlightenment, maybe the late Renaissance. And it was basically these secret societies were places where uh, rich folks could spend their leisure time. And they really liked the alchemical symbols and the imagery. And there is something powerfully archetypal in those, those images that sort of, you don't know what it is, but it's evocative. And so, yeah, you have a lot of rich people that want to <laughs> do something with their time and they create fellow clubs for other rich people. And that was ultimately what the Tula Society was. It was a culmination of all these years of traditions of secret societies. They'd actually been formed by a different secret society. There was another secret society called the Germanenorden, which was sort of a kind of recreation of the Teutonic Knights. They wanted to emulate that they were the Teutonic Knights, you know, pure Germans that were going to fight off heathens and save Germany. There was a there was a member that was a World War One veteran named uh, Walter Nauhaus, who offshot from that, tried to start another secret society, was failing until he met a very prominent, wealthy grifter named Rudolf Sabatendorf, or Rudolf von Sabatendorf. And Sabatendorf was the only member for, for a little while, but he helped convince lots of wealthy people wealthy people of influence in Bavaria and surrounding areas to join the society. And so it quickly grew. And then there were 2000 members within roughly 2000 members within the Bavarian province um, before its dissolution. So that was sort of the alchemical occultist element is sort of a, it's sort of a draw for people. But there are much more sinister things beneath those symbols and rituals. It's a way to galvanize support and give people something to believe in, something to feel cool about. Like, you know, it does feel cool. It feels like you're in a secret society with codes and meanings that only you in this group know about. Yeah, and that that's a theme that you see through with secret societies to modern day, right? We, we see that with skull and bones and xyz we could go on and on Very um, much. but you had mentioned rituals were there any sort of initiation type rituals or something that somebody might have to do to say be a member of the Tuli society um i don't know about all of the ins and outs of the Tula society 
I do know that members who offshot from it Mm -hmm. really went hard into this belief of a distant German identity. Um, We would kind of view that as sort of like a Viking-ish, like a Norse-ish style of living that there is, for instance, the SS runes were based on like Nordic runes. Um, A lot of the iconography of the Nazis is sort of Nordic, Germanic, this vaguely Germanic uh, image. So a lot of it was in the bling, you know, it's like you're dressing yourself with these symbols, uh, particularly runes, and then other national symbols of Germany, like the eagle and so on and so forth. As far as like ritual practices in the Tula Society, I don't know of any per se, but Heinrich Himmler, who was, I believe, a member, but was at least inspired greatly by them, uh, he went on to become uh, Reichsfuhrer of the SS under Hitler. He was one of his top guys. And he was all about the symbols. He was trying to make a new neo-pagan religion based on this, you know, contorted image of the past, of Viking history. And so he had things made, like he had these death rings made. There were these bands that members of uh, his most trusted SS would wear that had a ring and a, and a skull on it. He had a... Um, an insignia of a sword with runes around the edges. He had this uh, golden pot, this golden cauldron crafted uh, that was totally fake, but he was saying, oh, this is an ancient Celtic pot, uh, an ancient cauldron. So he's creating the imagery of ancient German myth. But as far as is like, blood sacrifices or <laughs> things to that effect uh spurious at best fair enough fair enough yeah it, it's not always that brutal necessarily sure yeah but you know secret handshakes or things like that maybe there was some sort of uh, <laughs> you know they definitely had you know they had that secret handshake later on but wasn't so you, secret you bring up cauldrons and i mean that has everything to do with alchemy right you're making something out of multiple facets so in definitely in celtic mythology and lore and legend and maybe even factual history there's many different types of cauldrons there there's one i forgot the name of it it was found in a swamp and it had a bunch of heads on it and that goes directly with the research that i've done on like the black sun that the Nazis followed later on. There's a connection with that cauldron. So it's interesting that all this stuff is connected, but it would make sense in history because Germany was such a widespread area, Germanic tribes and the Norse and the Greeks and the Egyptians. And a lot of times in history class, when we're in school, we're not told that a lot of this stuff coincides at the same time. It's not just a a linear thing. It's something that coexists in certain areas. And I think we get lost in the timeline to see that all these things connect with each other. Yeah, there's overlap and there's cross-pollination of cultures. And and the idea of any sort of purity of ethnicity or whatever is 
is not supported by anything. Even a pure culture doesn't exist. Uh, a lot of Norsemen converted to Islam or Christianity. So, you know, this pure idea of a neo-pagan religion doesn't quite hold water. So this fundamental idea amongst the Tula society comes again from theosophy and ariosophy is that there was a perfect, pure, distant past where they invented everything, everything imaginable, every scientific achievement, anything you could think of. But it was diluted over time. We lost that. So we have to go back and regain that and make it pure again. And so they fundamentally believed that every civilization really came out of the descendants of the Hyperboreans, the Atlanteans, uh, which were the Aryans. And so Greeks, Romans, uh, Egyptians, Carthaginians, whomever, you know, they, they were all really Germans, <laughs> fundamentally, according to these societies. So, like I said, twisting historical facts and more convoluted historical narratives to fit a very simple, narrow vision. And it's interesting that this group, for their short amount of time that they were formed as a society, did have this massive influence to the Nazi party and the eventual uh, rise of the Reich and how they kind of fell into the occult and went throughout World War II. So they did have this massive influence for such a short amount of time that they were around, which is very interesting. They were only around for about six years. It was 1919, and I believe they dissolved in 1925. That guy, Sabatendorf, who helped really bring the Tula Society into what it became, he got kicked out, at I think, in 1920 and fled to Turkey and then tried to come back when Hitler was out of prison and said, hey, you want to do this again? Um, and then they obviously said no, but <laughs> there was still vestiges of it around. I think really the main thing is that there were a bunch of people who had power and influence all being brought together by this shared activity. And they were being introduced to one another, getting ideas. They're all feeding off of the same ideology and they were looking for a figurehead. You know, it got twisted in, in their sort of, uh, you know, certain members really believed that, the person who was going to bring about this return to pure Arianism was a Messiah figure. There was a young orator who was coming to meetings of the political party they founded, the uh, Deutsches Arbeiterparty, which means, you know, this is the German Workers' Party. They made that as a political entity, and there was this young guy who was sent to spy on them, but he started listening to the rhetoric being spewed out. And that man was Adolf Hitler. And so all of these influential figures find each other. They find a figurehead in Hitler and they start making moves to put him in power. And it didn't happen beautifully all at once, but it did happen. And so they were, for early Nazism, very influential. It's like a lot of, it's, it's basically just a convention for anybody that is espousing this ideology here are more people. And <laughs> it was a recruiting ground to find anyone that could 
further that belief. They had their own newspapers. They had their own political party, as I said. Uh, and they had a lot of money and a lot of power. A lot of them were aristocrats. Now, do you know if any of the members uh, or anyone associated was outside of German nationality? Were there any members from other countries? Um, well, they were Germanic in origin. They're either German or Austrian. Austria is not part of Germany because of a political divide and not by anything really super cultural. Sebadendorf was actually a Turkish citizen. He had, through <laughs> uh, a wild set of circumstances, gained Turkish citizenship and had been gifted a legally dubious title of von Sabatendorf. His real name was Glauer. He was just a regular guy, but he got Turkish citizenship and he got this fake title and he started following all of this like uh, mysticism, Islamic mysticism, especially Sufism, um, and then brought that back to Germany. So I think that's really the only connection outside of Germany in terms of the membership. One thing that's should be noticed that this is firmly a German movement. There was something going on at the time called the Volkisch movement. And the Volkisch movement basically translates roughly to like a people or a folk movement. And it was about having a pure place, a utopia, a pure utopia for the German people to flourish, you know, have this perfect Aryan race without any pollution from any other races. There would be beautiful nature, beautiful people. Everything would be perfect. And this is where you get the phrase blood and soil, right? Which I think we've heard before in various, you know, neo-Nazi chants, but it comes from this sort of eco-fascist movement of like, this is Germany. We're going to create Lebensraum, living space, basically take over Europe and have it be pure and perfect so that we can thrive and it be pure German. There's no pollution from anything else, especially not the Jews. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Germany for a very, very long time, or the Germanic area was dominantly Europe, especially throughout the Roman Empire. And the way Germany looks now, the way Europe looks now on a map pre-World War One to post-World War Two, is astronomically different. Yes, incredibly. And throughout history, it's been, it's been completely changed a million times. Uh, the concept of Germany and why all of these people were so focused on Germany is because it was new. It was an identity that had just been created. It wasn't until 1871 that Germany fully unified, but even then it wasn't purely unified. It was based around the most powerful state, which was Prussia. And that's why I said Austria was kind of cut out because Austria was Prussia's rival. These two German states had rivalries. Prussia assumes control of different parts of territory and becomes a version of modern Germany. But throughout history, the German-speaking peoples, and then that's a bunch of different dialects and languages, were spread all across Europe. Um, there are German-speaking peoples in Italy, but they also colonized Ukraine, 
the Baltic states. They married into the, the royal family of Russia, into the Romanov family. So, yeah, there's so much cross-pollination like we were talking about. There's German-speaking ethnic Poles, or there are ethnic Czechs who... Uh, or sorry, there are Czech-speaking ethnic Germans or wherever. They're different. It's not clean. It's not this simple this is a German who speaks German from Germany. That was a new concept. It's kind of like America, though. America is a new concept, realistically. Yeah. Well, yeah, the thing is that, you know, the United States of America, you know, we're sort of, <laughs> we are sort of this patchwork of there are 50 separate states and then there are the territories, but each of them had a unique founding and identity. And we all speak English, but that's, that is in part, thankfully, to mass communication systems that arrived when we started expanding and flourishing, uh, which weren't present in other parts of the world uh, when they had their histories. And even in America, people can identify more with their race first or their, um, their city or something like that. There's, there's great division of like, who you are based on which demographic you fit into. Yeah, we're no different. We make fun of people from all over the country. <laughs> <laughs> we're all from New England, so we're we're probably getting made fun of too at, at some oh, some length. Time. Yeah, probably. <laughs> all the time. Well, taking it to modern day America, do you think that there is any alchemy taking place amidst somehow our our food what we're consuming what we're wearing something of that nature that is taking effect on people's lives that they're unaware of how do you mean do you mean that are we using alchemical practices or is there somebody who has a society of alchemists that's influencing the world somehow something more along the lines of the latter yeah okay um no not really uh Alchemy is has become pretty niche now. A lot of people in the common in, in common life would view it as a pseudoscience. And yes, technically, this idea of separating minds and bodies and souls from inanimate objects is technically incorrect. Um, however, people do keep the practice as it is a sort of it's a more spiritual and ethical practice. Um, there, there's something else besides the pure facts of science. And I think a lot of people are combining chemistry with like new chemistry with alchemical practices today. Uh, but it is, it is very small, very niche. Uh, there is renewed interest, I think. But I wouldn't say that there's any sort of society out there that poses any sort of that threat to the safety of anyone that uh that's conducting schemes it's largely if you are into alchemy you tend to be an academic <laughs> you tend to have a great interest in reading these old weird ass tomes i gotcha yeah i gotcha no that makes a lot of sense but we are using alchemical things every day if you've ever used baking soda you know if you've ever gone to the hospital and there was a toxicologist, like toxicology was invented by alchemists. 
and all these different, you know, fields of study. So we owe a lot to the alchemists. They didn't have all of the information, but with what they had, they created leaps and bounds that modern science can owe and attribute all of its gains to. It's really, it's really interesting because the only thing, I mean, I sound like such an idiot, but <laughs> the only thing that I've ever like focused like on alchemy is through Elder Scrolls. That's right. it. So, you know, I played ton of Skyrim, thousands of hours of Skyrim and previous, and then even, you know, making things in Fallout, you're making potions, you're doing all this stuff, you know, I've never looked into it. So, but I've always thought that, like you just said, like baking soda. So is bread a product of alchemy? I mean, <laughs> I mean, technically you could, you could attribute it that way, but like, uh... Yeah, guys, uh, throughout history, these alchemists uh, throughout history were um, doing a lot of what you were talking about in video games. A lot of people think of an alchemist as somebody hunched over these these beakers and tubes, combining different things, seeing what happens. And there was a lot of that. Um, but eventually they were discovering useful materials that they could be used, substances that could dissolve pure gold and filtrate it that or sodium sodium didn't occur in doesn't occur in nature on its own so breaking down salts into pure sodium and and learning about what composes different uh different items different substances compounds in nature that's a huge practice uh, that's a that's part of the practice is just taking and combining things or breaking them apart and reassembling them. So on the grand scheme of things, not to, not to take it back to my question, but <laughs> on the grand scheme of things, alchemy has affected society in a vast way that most people might not know about. It's just not in any sort of nefarious way. If anything, it's been for the better. Uh, yeah. I mean, there were charlatans out there that were, you know, tricking people into believing I can turn this lump of lead into gold. Uh, I just need a lot of time and money to do it. Mm. Um, you know, and we'll probably sell you some, <laughs> something belonging to a Nigerian prince at some point. Right. <laughs> yeah. There was a lot of, there was a lot of buffoonery and trickery going on. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, yes, a lot of, uh, scientists to a certain point would consider themselves an alchemist in their own terms. Um, you know, different societies, different cultures had different sorts of names for their art and their practice, and they had their own beliefs and ways to do it. But yeah, this was the, like I said, the basis of science for a long time. And the man who invented, were not invented, sorry, discovered gravity Isaac Newton was also an alchemist. He would consider himself an alchemist, a natural philosopher. So yes, I'd say in large part, it's been to the betterment of society, this continuation of scientific progress. And I should add actually that there is an ethical element of alchemy that may not fully be in science. I think a lot of scientists do try to be ethical, but part of the teachings of alchemy is philosophy. And so what is the correct way to use these powers, right? If your ultimate goal is to create something that can create limitless gold or immortal life, that being the philosopher's stone, 
well, what are you going to use it for? And so that's a fundamental question in the practice. Now, as we're talking about alchemy, what are your thoughts on the homunculi? On the homunculi? <laughs> um, in, in, what, uh, in what sense? Do you as mean? them being kind of creatures of alchemaic creation. Yes. So, I mean, they come directly from alchemical texts. I don't believe that's the first time they've been mentioned, but they've certainly been mentioned by some of the most famous alchemists, one being Paracelsus, uh, the practitioner who helped create the field of toxicology, as I'd mentioned earlier. He referred to homunculi as sort of a constructed human, right? You could possibly combine different substances and create a living being. Uh, homunculus in Latin means little man or little human. And so Paracelsus's belief was that you could take different compounds, put them together and create something resembling human life. And that would be your homunculus. Uh, and it's seen in different mythologies around the world, whether it be animated statues or the golem or different versions of something that was non-living coming to life and being a, a human. We see that quite often. So the, he was accessing something archetypal deep within the human subconscious there. Now, his process was, you know, fermenting horse semen for about 40 days and combining it with all this other random crap. I don't think <laughs> that will yield you a living human life, but... <laughs> anyone's welcome to try as long as you obtain that horse semen legally. As long as you have that giant sheath that you put on that horse dick and it's just right, right on there and you hang on to it for a while and throw it in your barn refrigerator for 40 days. <laughs> yeah, there was weird. There were weird things that were kind of based out of folklore of like, well, you have to, you know, use this substance from a specific animal and this time of the moon um, and do X, Y, and Z to it, it, it could get very strange and uh, wasn't based in a whole lot of fact. Do you think, I know we mentioned that there might be certain powers that might not be using alchemy, but as a terms of cryptids, mm -hmm. do you think there might be some not nefarious, but black projects that are within our government or certain private organizations that have actually created some of these cryptids because of the, the weird and strange nature of some of these things like Mothman or the Fresno Nightcrawler or something that's mm -hmm. super, super strange. So you're, you're thinking about combining different animals or creatures with possibly human DNA to create a hybrid. Mm. Um, I can't, really say to any any degree of certainty um i think maybe at some point some alchemist thought of possibly putting different animals together and seeing if they could live i know that certain bizarre scientific quacks throughout history have tried that uh, i think in the uh the soviet union various different uh you know stitchings of animals together were tried and attempted to keep you know, the head of a, a wolf alive or something. No, I can't really say. I, I would say that if any anybody is doing anything to combine different forms of life or create new life, it would come from a genetic perspective rather than an alchemical one.
because the alchemists don't have any sense of what a gene is. Okay, so it's a whole yeah. different. Yeah, I'd say there wouldn't be much crossover there, but certainly crossover into secret societies with political agendas. I would like to know if the the to, to bring it back if the tool society eventually turned into something else and then went underground. I think they didn't really need to go underground. What happened was they founded the the DAP, as I said, the uh, Workers Party. Hitler was sent there to spy on them. He became entranced with their rhetoric. And then uh, Dietrich Eckhart, who was a, a Tula Society member, started coaching him as an orator and using his natural talents to become a public speaker. And really, once they had Hitler, the Tula Society started losing prominence. And a lot of those members sort of drifted over to focusing more on the efforts of instating Hitler in power. So I don't know that they necessarily needed to go underground. They sort of said, hey, we are the mainstream now, and let's, uh, let's take over. And so, yeah, a lot of them were very influential in getting Hitler's start. They didn't quite get it right the first time with the beer hall putsch, but uh, when he got out of prison, <laughs> those of them who were still around really helped him get his start and uh, launch a whole new terrible career. So I think um, a lot of them were above ground and pretty obvious because they had no reason to hide throughout the Nazi regime. When the war was over, afterwards, if there were any members of the Tula Society or you know anyone who helped on the various projects to find artifacts across the world, Nazi archaeologists, a lot of them integrated back into German society as if nothing happened or got recruited by the U.S. to work on science projects and their rockets. And I think you've covered that in a previous episode. Operation Paperclip. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of them were uh, <laughs> a lot of them were were brought back in a very uncomfortable way, but uh, it happened. Well, Zosimos, it has been absolutely fantastic to have you on. This is some subject matter that we haven't really gotten too deep with. <laughs> we, we're just getting started. <laughs> oh, I believe this is just the tip of the iceberg, sir, for sure. Can't fit all of this stuff into an hour. I, I right. know that for a fact. So for that, we are grateful. Um, right now is your time. Please promote yourself, plug everything you've got, everything you're working on. Let us know how people can find you, how they can you know, find your books and so on and so forth. Sure. So the center for where to find my books is alchemiaseries.com, A-L-C-H-E-M-E-A, series.com. My two published novels are there. They are completely free to download. Uh, you can go ahead and get them. I have an Instagram that's Alchemia Series, Alchemia Book Series, excuse me. I've written some videos uh, under another name uh, for Mystery Syndicate. They're based on cryptids. Yeah, you can just find those on YouTube at Mystery Syndicate. I'm currently working on a multitude of other projects and working on the third book in the series, which will involve the Tula Society uh, and the interwar period in Germany and lots of alchemical stuff that will be out on November 11th of this year. I'm working on a variety of other projects. I've got uh, 
a documentary hopefully coming out very soon and hopefully posting videos on YouTube. They're probably not much uh, in the way of like financial gain, but I'm trying to just do more stuff and put it out there. It's going to be on the Ukraine war. I'm always working on things. Uh, if you want further reading for this particular subject, I have a few recommendations. So if you're curious about learning the uh, occult roots of Nazism, we've got Occult Roots of Nazism. That is the title of the book <laughs> by Nicholas Goodrick Clark. Uh, and then you've Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. And then I would also recommend the Behind the Bastards podcast on Helena Blavatsky, who invented Theosophy, which was a major influence on the Tula Society and the Volkish movement. I think that covers it. Well, we'd definitely love to have you on again. I'm sure we can schedule that in the future at some point. Very good. Thank you. I would love to be here. Truly appreciate you being on the show, taking your time with us, and uh, talking about all of this interesting stuff that a lot of people, maybe a lot of our listeners, have never heard of. And uh, with that being said, thanks for joining us for another Declassified Discussions. I'm Declassified Dave. I'm Mr. Mike. And I'm Slick Frank Sanders. I'm Zosimos. Thank you for having me, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure.